I actually really want to know. Evan. Yeah. I hear they had ice skating this year for families over at the White House um, for to celebrate Christmas or holiday season. It's, it is All true. Holidays. This is the first time in 40 years. I, I would say this is a boutique issue. Um, not every American <laughs> Did is you clamoring. Go? Well, not yet. We're going to go oh, later today, uh, actually. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. We're, I'm going to take Ollie down there. And, you know, he, he's, he was like, yeah, fine, White House. That all sounds fine. But, like, <laughs> oh, how's, how's the kid. ice? How's the skate? <laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny. I have to say— the White House as public house thing, the, it does send the messaging, right? You know, the, the Bidens are clearly much more interested in the kind of public function of That's the House. True. And yeah. we were back there this week for the first time since Donald Trump had one and one only uh, Christmas party, holiday party for the press. That was his first year in office. Never did it again. <laughs> and that was the year of the famous, remember the Melania, like, blood red yeah. trees, the, yeah. you know, the alley blood of red. trees? The contrast could not have been starker. Well, let's just cut to the chase. How is the eggnog? <laughs> <laughs> Jane, you're the eggnog aficionado of this group, so I, t- I wouldn't... I, I wouldn't. mean, when I did see online that they called it a liquid heart attack, I had some second thoughts. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Jane Mayer. Hey, Evan. Hey there, Susan. Hey, Jane. Hey, Susan. So, big week. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced just the other day that he'll be leaving Congress come January not long after a coup by several of his fellow House Republicans made him the first speaker in U.S. history to be thrown out of office. And he is not alone in leaving. McCarthy's departure is part of a rush to the exit by dozens of members of the 118th Congress. Some are leaving, of course, to run for higher office. Some are retiring. And others, perhaps many others, like Colorado's Ken Buck, have simply had enough. The inability of Congress to deal with major issues is is a huge part of why I'm leaving. The uh, Republican Party's obsession with uh, relitigating the last election and not focusing on the next election is a big part of it. And by the way, Ken Buck is a Republican. (laughs) Even by the standards of recent years, this Congress, with its very, very narrow House Republican majority, has been perhaps uniquely dysfunctional. Its place in the record books now includes not only America's first ever deposed speaker, but also its first House member expelled from office for lying about just about everything. Hi, Courtney. It's George Santos here. Just wanted to stop by to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And that was recently expelled Congressman George Santos, the fabulous, in his new gig, selling personalized video greetings online for something like 400 bucks a pop. So what are we to make of this extraordinarily high turnover in Congress this year? Why have so many members decided to bail out? What does this tell us about what's ailing Congress today? Jane, I want to go to you first because, of course, 
Congress and dysfunction have been sort of synonyms in the dictionary for a while, right? (laughs) This is not entirely a new phenomenon. And yet, you know, that's a question I feel like we've had a lot of debates about over the last few months, right? Like, is it a uniquely uh, uh, Republican phenomenon, right? You know, is this a story about the decline of an institution or is it a story about the decline of a political party? Uh, is there like a both option for, for this? <laughs> it's not and or. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, look at—they're running for the exits, running out of Congress for the exits, as if there was a fire. And actually, that's a good metaphor because this sort of began in some ways in 1994 with Newt Gingrich, who wanted to burn down the House, mm. and they've been burning it down in one way or another ever since. And who is they? It is the Republican Party, and I think we have to be careful not to sort of fall into faux-to-siderism here. I mean, there is dysfunction on the Democratic side of a different order, and we can talk about it, but it is nothing like what we're looking at here. This is, it is extraordinary, and um, it has been escalating over the years. So there are waves of extremism that then basically push out their own leadership, and then the next wave comes in and pushes out that leadership, and it's pushing towards the cliff further and further off to the right, and it's kind of reached its grand crescendo now that it's the party of Trump, because chaos is his brand, and that is what this Republican Party is. Now, Evan, of course, you know, this is, Kevin McCarthy isn't even the first Republican speaker. You know, he's the first ever to be actually thrown out of office, but he's actually the third in a row, as we've seen this process of increasing radicalization that Jane is talking about. He's the third in a row, really, to leave because of the extreme, you know, kind of burn-it-down mentality of his own members. So you had John John Boehner starts out as a revolutionary, you know, ends up basically quitting in disgust rather than being pushed out by the House Freedom Caucus. Paul Ryan, the kind of right-wing policy wonk who throws up his hands with the Donald Trump presidency and says, I'm out of here, once promising, you know, political career ended, Kevin McCarthy. But what's striking is now there's it looks like the remaining kind of institutionalists or accommodations, whatever you want to call them, because it wasn't just this week that McCarthy announced he was leaving. But I thought another significant departure was Patrick McHenry, the mm. bow-tied gentleman from North Carolina who served as acting speaker after they threw out McCarthy. McHenry, tell us a little bit about him. He started out also as a flamethrower, and yet this detail really scared me. You know, he was the only one of North Carolina's eight Republican House members back in 2021 to vote to certify the results of the 2020 election. Now he's gone, too. What does that tell us? Yeah, it tells you that the place has become inhospitable to somebody even like McHenry. I mean, he he came into Congress uh, originally as a real sort of firebrand, and then he decided actually, you know what, if I'm going to do anything here, I'm going to have to play within the system. And he came inside of this Kevin McCarthy uh, world. And I think what's, what's notable here is that you're seeing, in effect, that it's not just that he was ejected Kevin McCarthy from the speakership. It was really like a kind of regime change in the Republican Party. And and that is a, a, a kind of I know this is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but it's a sort of incivility of politics that we have to reckon with. There's a way in which it's not just, okay, you know, we don't agree with you on policy. It's like we eject you from the organism. I I thought Jamie Raskin actually had a great line the other day. He said, it is straight up entropy. Things fall apart. It's scientific, he said. I I actually think he captured something. This is about an organizational 
unraveling. You know, but there is a philosophy behind it. This is the thing. You know, we measure dysfunction in in Congress by the fact that they only passed 22 bills this year. That's almost a record low. Not since 1931 have they had such a poor record of achievement. But, But there is a large faction of the Republican Party and of the conservative movement that doesn't want laws passed, that's anti-government. For 40 years, they've been trying to destroy the idea of, of a strong federal government. And and I would say they're doing a pretty good job of it. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, uh, you know, that very low number of bills passed. I mean, this has been a kind of uh, macro trend for a number of years, and it's sort of gone down and down and down and down. And, you know, in reality, bills passed, many of them aren't that significant. I mentioned that number to Peter the other day, and he said, oh, you know, it's the, the sound of post offices, post offices not being named yeah. all over America. <laughs> uh, but I think it, it does get at sort of the broader point in an important way, which is uh, there's a lot of members of Congress who uh, are perfectly happy not to be in the legislating business. But we haven't talked about the Trump factor, because that exists too. In a way, right, these headwinds were already there. This was already in, in development, whether you dated back to the Reagan era or the 1994 Re- Gingrich revolution. But Evan, yeah. how do you assess, you know, kind of the role of the Trumpification of the Republican Party in accelerating this? This is the post-January 6th world that we're living in, in which two-thirds of the House Republican Conference voted at the very beginning of this, uh, you know, presidency to say that the president wasn't wasn't legitimate. You know, it happens to be that at the time that we're talking about this, I'm working on a piece for The New Yorker about elite culture. And we're going to talk more about that later when I finish this thing. It's driving me nuts. But it I sounds read a like a Fox producer's fever dream. <laughs> oh, except that it's also every sociologist's <laughs> fixation. Right. I mean, this is like you do not understand how a society functions unless you understand how ideas are radiated from the top. And there's a great book called Status and Culture published last year by a guy named David Marks in which he makes the point that we know intuitively but is now measurable and clear, which is that the ideas that – a high-status individual represents and gives off, whether it's about fashion, art, politics, or in the case of Donald Trump, the the full Michigas of Trumpism, that that absolutely changes culture. And that's how culture changes. We used to think, well, how does culture change? Do ideas move around like a social contagion? No, they radiate from the top. And we're seeing that in action in the United States. Congress. I mean, and I think, I mean, and the result, when you look at Congress, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about this session is the sort of growing right on the edge of violence um, among the when there are disputes. And it, it's kind of what, what you were saying, Evan, about the lack of civility. I mean, we've seen some things that, you know, in the history books you used to read about, you know, pre-Civil War, one congressman caning another, or maybe it was a senator caning another. The congressman um, caning Sumner. a senator. Yeah. Sumner. Yeah. Right. But, but honestly, we have had within the Republican Party – um, one congressman accused uh, Kevin McCarthy of jabbing him purposefully in the kidneys. I mean, like a physical assault. Not just one of the congressmen, one of the eight members of Congress who actually deposed Kevin McCarthy. Highly personal uh, payback, it, it's right? Get, these personal disputes are becoming very close to physical disputes. What McCarthy said in response, which was not like, oh, I, you know, I'm sorry if I did anything that made him. What he said was, if I had punched him in the kidneys, he'd be on the ground. I mean, it is a, it is a uh, <laughs> the this is a, the, the, it's just it's it's really a kind of madness, and I think 
you know, we've talked about Joanne Friedman's book on this podcast, but it is worth remembering that that is a book about the violence in Congress and the run-up to the Civil War. These are meaningful and really worrisome signs that we should take seriously. And by the way, so for the record, at least 38 members of Congress as of this taping have declared that they won't be seeking re-election. And then there's the one with the forced exit from Congress. We've been mentioning the run-up to the Civil War. George Santos, now former representative is actually the first member of Congress expelled who wasn't either a former Confederate or already convicted in a court of law. Certainly the most unique departure so far from Congress that we're likely to see for a while. Just quickly, Evan, can you remind listeners of how exactly uh, Santos ended up uh, uh, expelled? And uh, does it does it mean anything, this larger conversation we're having about um, Congress and its dysfunction? I, I, you know, on some level, I actually think that the expulsion is a sign that there is still life in this brainstem uh, in the United States Congress. Look, I mean, everybody, unless they've been on Pluto, knows that George Santos was uh, an extraordinary fabulist. I mean, even by the standards of politics, here is a guy who got into Congress in 2022 uh, lying about everything. And and I wish I had some fresh example of what he lied about. But you'd see it right there in the indictment, 23 counts uh, in a federal indictment. The amazing thing was the first time they talked about expelling him, they couldn't get enough votes to do it. They finally did do it. The final vote, in fact, uh, was 311 to 114. The fact that Republicans could summon the energy to do this and could decide to get rid of him was not a foregone conclusion. And there were a lot of people concerned about it. But by the way, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the vote count because one thing that leapt out to me was that in the end, actually a narrow majority of the Republican Congress voted to keep George Santos, including the leadership, even with everything, they'd have rather had George Santos's vote in their narrow majority than All right. not. I mean, but, you know, we have rules every now and then on this show, and one of them is never underestimate self-interest in, in <laughs> politics. They want to keep their margin as high as they can because they're so close, the Republican right, leadership. Right, that's what obviously. I was saying. Yeah, right. And so what we're, you know, with this incredibly— the, the, they would rather have Santos than lose one more vote. You know, I mean, and I think some of these exits probably represent a growing sense, um, at least according to, you know, various analysts, that the Republicans may very likely lose the majority in the House in 2024 unless there's some wave that comes through. And so they're kind of looking for the exits partly out of self-interest also. Well, this strikes me as a perfect moment to bring in a little bit of expert help because (laughs) clearly we don't fully understand uh, what is going on inside this Republican conference right now, what it means for the broader institution of Congress. I just, I, we have so many questions, mm-hmm. right? Well, we decided we'll try something a little bit different, actually, on this episode of The Political Scene and get somebody who actually knows firsthand what he's talking about to help us puzzle through. Because in the end, we're talking about almost, you talked about elite culture, we're talking about the culture of an institution yeah. that has been subject to tremendous change. So we're going to Dial in former Congressman Jim Cooper, uh, one of our most reliable informants over the years. 
Evan, tell us a little bit about why the congressman is such a great informant for us. Well, I mean, for one thing, he came into Congress in the 1980s. He served just until recently. Um, He's seen it from every angle. And I remember going back and looking at a clip about him when he first got there. And he said at the time, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the United States to get to serve in this body. He was quite literally uh, a Boy Scout. He'd been an Eagle Scout, a Rhodes Scholar. He was the guy who kind of was just excited about getting to Congress. And I think you, you really cannot find somebody who has thought more and has been as close to the coalface uh, trying to hash this out uh, than Jim Cooper. By the way, is that one of your West Virginia uh, metaphors? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a folksyism I picked I'm up along Susan the way. I'm glad you asked him about that. Close to the coalface, coal right? That's really? Is that not a saying? Like, Wait, that's a, I was using it because we're talking about Tennessee. I thought, you know, <laughs> it's good, good contextually appropriate. Congressman, can you hear us? Yes, good morning. Hey, there All you right. are. Good morning to Hi. you. How are you? Fine, thank you. Honored to be with you. Look at that. You're wow. now in civilian attire. Okay, this is really exciting because <laughs> you are our official first guest on this uh, on this show. We've been doing this every Friday, more or less, for a little bit more than a year. But um, we decided finally to, I'm sure our uh, listeners will be very delighted, <laughs> we finally decided <laughs> to broaden the aperture. And you served on the Hill literally for decades. How has it changed? And is do you think that's a reason why we're seeing pretty high uh, levels of turnover this year, that people are just sort of saying enough is enough? I've had a long perspective, having started back in 1982 in the first Reagan term as the youngest congressman in America. I'm afraid it's gone downhill, sometimes slowly, sometimes suddenly. <laughs> Newt Gingrich helped ruin it. But then uh, it never improved after that. And suddenly, recently, there's been a terrible drop-off. So it's really become a clown show. And elections are like clown swapping. (laughs) And one of the main reasons is good people don't want to run. So who do you choose from on a ballot? Now, I want more voting, not less. So I don't want to discourage people from turning out and voting. But it's appalling. Uh, Some of the best people in society would never consider running for office. And I don't blame them because it's a terrible job. Uh, it's, you know, an honor to have that job. Somebody's got to do it, but it's not a great job. We've had a pay freeze, for example, the last 15, 20 years. We don't deserve a pay increase, but you get what you pay for. Yeah, we've been talking a little bit about George Santos in this conversation, but more about, you know, Kevin McCarthy and three straight Republican speakers in a row who've essentially kind of thrown up their hands or been forced out because of their own conference. How much is this a story about the transformation of the Republican Party? Is it is it accelerated by sort of the divisions of the Trump era, do you think? Well, I don't think there is a Republican Party anymore. And if there is one, it's ungovernable because um, they eat their own. Hmm. Uh, they're cannibalistic. And it's sad because uh, several of the speakers have been fine people. John Boehner is great. Paul Ryan was great. I'm less fond of Kevin and Mike. But um, Who wants to be in charge of a group like that when just six or eight people can take you down? And they're not there for the good of the country. They're there for their own personal gain. That idea of being there for their own personal gain is really an important piece of this because politics seems like it's this balance between self-interest and collective interest. And that managing that is delicate. And when did you sense that that balance was failing? Well, again, I would tie it to the Gingrich era. Congress became, instead of a destination, a stepping stone. 
because you could be paid multiples of your salary by just becoming a Washington lobbyist. And most former members of Congress live in Washington and most are lobbyists. And oftentimes the worst special interests are willing to pay the most. You know, good causes don't need lobbyists. And by the way, the future doesn't have any lobbyists. So uh, the future is being shortchanged in the country right now. And the, the dregs of society have risen to the top. And they're pretty much running things right now. Well, I mean, how much of this comes down to uh, the money, basically the need to raise so much money and um, the sort of corruption of the system by, by campaign finances that have kind of gone to hell? Well, with all due respect, as we say in Congress, the money problem is the opposite. The problem with politics today is it's so cheap. If you're a giant corporation and you want to manipulate the system, you can use advertising or you can go rent a few congressmen. One of my uh, favorite senators, John Bro, said, you can't buy my vote, but you can rent it. And he, <laughs> he was joking. Yeah, but he was from Louisiana. Well, <laughs> that's true. That's a separate jurisdiction. So it should cost more? Well, you know, I've been involved in finance for sometimes outside of politics, and it's amazing how cheap politics seems to rich people because a maximum contribution of a few thousand dollars is nothing. I've seen people tip that much, you know, for a valet, and they're treating Congress like a vending machine. You put in a little money, you get out a prize. Now, to average Americans, it's a whole lot of money, but to the rich people, and there are more and more of them than ever before due to the income inequality, they find it an easy system to rig. So if you're a billionaire, you can pretty much control Congress. But surely the solution can't be to say we need more money in politics. What do we do? How do we, if you were waving your magic wand, Congressman, what would you do that would actually make one reasonable improvement in how things operate? Well, the Supreme Court has largely screwed this up because corporations are not people and money is not speech. So we have to change that constitutional interpretation. We're going to let you get on with your day, but I have to ask you, because the subject of our discussion today is you know, this particularly dysfunctional Republican majority, is the answer in a narrow sense, well, if they lose next year, then uh, the institution can begin to write itself or no? I mean, are, are the two parties locked in a kind of a mutual dance of destruction at this point? What, what, what will happen in 2024, do you think? Well, it's unlikely a new crop of good candidates is suddenly going to volunteer to run during this era. So we're probably going to be in an unstable period for some time. Uh, Joe Grinspan has talked about this with his book, The Age of Acrimony, the worst 50 years in American history in Congress. I'm afraid we're just going to have to ride out the storm. It's like a hurricane. You may see a calm period, but that's the eye of the storm. We're going to have this for some time because the anger out in the public is amazing. And the need they feel for a booze cruise, as David French has put it, is also amazing. They want to vent, and they also want to be entertained. And politicians who supply that to them will likely win elections. The booze cruise, the clown car, Congressman Cooper, we can see why perhaps you took your time and uh, uh, said goodbye after all those decades. But we thank you for being our very first guest. I'm so honored. We're all going to be riding out this hurricane somewhere, sheltering in place. Hopefully be it'll well. be a booze cruise Come for back us. Again. <laughs> thank you. See you. Bye. All right. Oh that my was goodness. bracing, I have to say. I mean, it, it was bracing, but he, but so smart. And yeah. this is the problem: the smart people have left. 
It's really true. I mean, it, it and and not, not just all of them. There's some fantastic people. I just want to say on behalf of because I know there's so many people who hate politics and hate Washington. There's some really great, smart, and idealistic and hardworking people here still. And I think, but. you know, what's amazing, too, is I remember that the New York Times once described Jim Cooper as the House's conscience. They said he was a lonely voice for civility in this ugly era. And you want to know what's amazing? That was in 2011. <laughs> that was the halcyon days compared to where we are today. And I think you heard that in his sense of that. Absolutely. And, of course, there is a long prehistory leading up to this moment, right? He's talking about, you know, the, the fights of the Reagan era, which he also observed firsthand. And, and they were a mere warm-up act, you know, in some ways to where we are right now. But look, let's let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the effects of all this on the country. All right. First of all, we haven't, I have to say, we haven't mentioned the S word at all here in this discussion. And, you know, there are different dynamics. There always have been historically between the House and the Senate. And Republicans in the Senate, they're much more still establishment, partially the nature of the six-year term. But you got to wonder, do you think, Evan, that the dysfunction we're seeing today in the House Republican conference, is that a, a harbinger of the future for the Senate Republicans? They're still led by Mitch McConnell, more old school fellow, but it looks like the direction of travel might be right towards where the House is. You know, it is true that in some ways the Senate has always taken pleasure in being able to say, well, at least we're not the House of Representatives. <laughs> um, but this is not a culture that is unique to one side of the Hill. And and the, the dynamics, particularly starting at the top with Trump, are very much present on both sides. And I, I don't think that... Uh, Anybody should have any illusions that just because the House is erupting in chaos does not mean that the Senate is protected from it. You know, I I was at a dinner with a a, a Democratic senator recently, and he was describing the dynamics up there in the Senate. And he said that that Mitch McConnell's sort of frailty at this point, he's had these health episodes, has really made a difference. And he said it's a little bit like – what they've got now is the substitute teachers are there, and they are the people who are just trying to vie for the to be the future leaders. And meanwhile, the teacher is out, and everybody's misbehaving. <laughs> that really does sound like an appropriate metaphor. Metaphor alert! Metaphor alert! Um, you know, we talked about the uh, amazing story of George Santos in the house, but you know. Anyone who's been in Washington for more than 10 minutes knows that no one party has a monopoly on bizarre scandals when it comes to American politics. And, you know, over the years, we've seen Democratic scandals, Republican scandals. Right now in the Senate, uh, there is one senator who is accused of very significant wrongdoing. Uh, in some ways, you could argue it's it's more consequential, the allegations against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat, than than against George Santos, who George Santos lied about everything about his resume. Bob Menendez is accused of essentially monetizing his chairmanship of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Evan, what should we make of the fact that Menendez is still in the Senate while George Santos has been pushed out of the House? Well, to some degree, there is a similar dynamic at play politically where you see that neither party is moving very fast to eject somebody when they are so close 
uh, in numbers. I mean, the reality is they lose Bob Menendez and they would all of a sudden find themselves in very tricky political territory. So uh, the other fact is Menendez has been accused in the past, went to trial, you'll recall, on a previous corruption charge and it ended in a hung jury. And I think there was he then went back to his work in Congress, had never left, uh, but continued on. And I think on some level, there is a feeling that they don't know how this case is going to play out. But in the meantime, it is a very ugly emblem of what kind of conduct goes on just beyond the scope of the cameras on any given day. I mean, it's almost like Hollywood level sort of uh, imagery where you've got a, a senator who was taking a gold bullion and stuffing wads of cash that they found into his clothing. And we do know because we've seen what happens when when Chuck Schumer wanted to get rid of a senator and push him out because he was an embarrassment to them. They did that to Al Franken. And Chuck Schumer was tough called him to his own apartment, a little tiny pied-a-terre with hardly any furniture in it, and told Franken, get out, basically. He could do that with Menendez if he wanted to. Why do you think he isn't? Well, for one thing, I think, as, as you've said, Evan, that Menendez is a fighter. I mean, Franken folded easily by comparison. Um, Menendez is, you know, proclaiming his innocence no matter how many gold bullion uh, what is bullion plural? Is it um, bullion with an S? What are we doing? <laughs> These are the important I questions. I wish I knew. I wish there they was more bullion this. in my life I could tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, it, it feels like maybe Congressman Cooper uh, more familiar with <laughs> these high finance matters. Um, but, uh, Jane, you've re- repeatedly raised, and I think it's important, what are, the, what are the consequences here? What's on the agenda? As we're having this conversation right now, uh, you know, Congress has managed to kick the can, you know, into 2024 on some of the spending crises and whether we're going to have a government shutdown. But they did that by once again not actually doing, you know, their work of passing the annual appropriations bills. Right now, there's a a huge crisis brewing over American aid uh, to Ukraine, and uh, it's been stuck along with American additional assistance to Israel, to Taiwan, uh, with this question of border funding. Right now, President Biden gave an emergency speech the other day and said, hey, listen here, we said we'd be there for as long as it takes for Ukraine. And now the Senate, not the House, the Senate is trying and, and failing to come up with a compromise to get this money supported, even though there is a bipartisan majority in both houses that, in theory, supports our assistance to Ukraine beating off Russian aggression. Jane, I know you've brought up this issue, and it's a very important one, of what are the consequences of all of this? Are there other issues that are essentially being held hostage to this dysfunction? The burning crisis that this Congress has not dealt with is is climate change. I mean, they have got to deal with this. It's it, every other modern democracy has is dealing with this. They also have to deal. We've got we've got a tremendous potentially world changing developments in AI, and they have not dealt with this. Um, there there need to be some kind of regulations that that deal with this, which could be just a you know. Um, a change like, you know, that that affects the whole society. There's any number of issues. There's, you know, economic inequality. There's there, there just 
every issue you can think of, and they're not dealing with them. We're dealing with George Santos and, you know, kicking him out or not and and other kind of clown acts, basically. Well, and of course, next week, if you want to watch uh, dysfunction and uh, politics on naked display, it looks like next week we're going to have another round of uh, House impeachment fight and that this new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, seems determined to go where even Kevin McCarthy could not and to have a House vote in the coming days before the holidays on opening a formal House impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden despite an investigation that has not turned up the smoking gun about Joe Biden and his dealings with his son, Hunter Biden, and Hunter Biden's foreign clients. Here we are. What what does that tell us? We're going to end the year not with money for Ukraine, it looks like, but for another impeachment inquiry just in time for a national election year. Well, you know, I think it's worth stating clearly there has so far been no evidence that would confirm the accusations that they're making. Um, And I think you have to scope out for a second and think about this from the perspective of the American public. I mean, this is the a a moment in which people are looking at people in power and saying to themselves, how in God's name did we end up with this situation? I honestly – think that the long-term effect is that more and more people disengage. And that's the really worrisome fact from my perspective. I, I don't think that uh, in the end Joe Biden is going to be driven out of the presidency by the Republicans in the House. But I do think that uh, it is corroding what is the core of American democracy, which is the willingness of the public to believe that this has a connection to their lives. And that ultimately is the real Concern, Jane, you are always uh, uh, accusing me of being the pessimist in this conversation. <laughs> so I dare you to uh, end this silver, on an optimistic note. Search for the silver lining here. <laughs> Let me just think. Okay. It's I not actually, that easy, is okay, it? No, it's a tough it's a, one. <laughs> it's a tough one. I actually think, um, and it's really not that I'm so optimistic, but I actually think that, that this jam that the Republicans have put Biden in Having to, to that's forcing him into a corner, having to deal with funding for the security on the border, it may actually help get that problem off his back. He can say, I was forced to do it. Mm. Um, and it's a difficult problem for Democrats to deal with, and it might be easier for him if he said, I had to do this because otherwise we couldn't save Ukraine or Israel. All right. Home Springs. Eternal. Wait, you're not getting off the hook, Susan. What do you think? What, 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 where do you see ultimately the, uh, this, this period going? I mean, do you think that this leads to a recognition that we've hit the bottom of the barrel? I know it's, you know, the easy thing to say is now there's always a new bottom. But I mean, do you actually think at a certain point that the pendulum begins to move back towards a functional Congress? I think the pendulum is probably not the right metaphor here. Uh, We have a long-term direction of travel uh, rather than a pendulum. And, you know, Congressman Cooper is probably correct that, you know, the structural incentives in American politics are warped. And given that, they are producing actually outcomes that, that are predictable, that are consistent with where those structural uh, incentives in politics have have gone awry. We have now 
election after election that have produced essentially deadlocked American government. Uh, for 40 years, Democrats had a, a chokehold over Congress. They, that was, in many ways, the anchor and the stability of the post World War II era in American politics was this very long dominance of the Democratic Party in the House of Representatives, even while the Senate changed hands. And now we're in a different moment in our country. We're at a moment where election after election is producing essentially a dead heat. So that's where you have a five-seat Republican majority for the Democrats under Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Then it flips, but you only have a five-seat majority for House Republicans and a much more fractured party. Now that five-seat majority is down, it's going to be down to three seats and possibly even two seats, even more ungovernable. So do I anticipate in November of 2024 that we're going to settle this thing once and for all and move on? Uh, well, maybe it takes uh, more of a cockeyed optimist than me I, I to say that. You, well, I, I will tell you that actually structure, Susan's word, is exactly right. I think that structure is the most interesting terrain to write about and to think about these days from my perspective. I think that the, the politics on the surface is is what it is. And we, you don't learn a whole lot when you when you really just dwell on it. And, and some of the most interesting writing is being done about, well, how do we actually vote for people? How do we apportion? How do we decide congressional districts? You know, whether you're talking about amending the Constitution or other things. You know, I know that for a long time that was considered sort of esoteric political science. It's not, actually. Some of the most interesting stuff being done is about how do you amend the structures of government? And I, I think in the new year, we're probably going to be talking about that some more. Well, I thought that it was really interesting that Congressman Cooper suggested that it, beneath all of this, that the change that broke Congress was the Supreme Court's Citizens yeah, United right. decision. And I think that is probably where the change has to come. All right. Well, maybe that's one of the things we can invite our listeners to uh, to help advise us on. Uh, we've been inviting your questions. Uh, let us know, what do you think is the thing that broke the U.S. Congress, and can anything fix it? This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown, and we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening.